Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to celebrate something with you. On Friday, we had two baptisms. Hold the applause for a second. Uh, John Lutain over here and Jason Bonikowski, his friend, is, are they in this service or third? I think they're in third service. Okay. Uh, Jason's been praying for a long time for his friend, and uh, it was just so cool to get to witness them make this decision. It was awesome. And then Jamie Bandos, who is in this service, so we get to celebrate with them. All right? Look, and this isn't just for kids. Like, this is for everybody to celebrate, okay? And so Jamie's right here up front, and I uh, got to baptize him into Christ on Friday. It was an incredible uh, day uh, to celebrate a lot of cool things God's doing in their lives. And so on three, we're going to celebrate like uh, all of heaven celebrated on Friday. You ready? All right. One, two, three. Yeah! It's awesome. Very good. Hey, uh, so we are in a series within a series as we are looking at uh, the book of Ephesians. We have been slowly walking through Ephesians since the very beginning of the year, and uh, one of the things that's helpful in kind of wrapping your mind around uh, this preaching series that's gone all year is to see what Paul's doing in the big picture. For the first three chapters in Ephesians, Paul has given us a lot of depth and theology. Then there's this pivot that takes place in chapter 4 where he takes all that theology and begins to talk to us about what it looks like to live it out, like to apply this to your life. And even more particular, at the end of chapter 5 going into chapter 6, he kind of brings it home, if you will. That's why we're calling it this little series within a series, Bring It Home, and talks about how understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done impacts, perhaps more than anything else, the people that sit around your kitchen table. Your marriage, your children are going to be so impacted by your understanding of who Jesus is, meaning the more we come to understand Jesus, the greater impact it's going to have on our marriage and family relationships. And Paul lays this out for us. Now, one of the things that I've learned from experience and just in ministry over and over again is that marriage is not a walk in the park. It's not easy. Many of you would say, amen. <laughs> the husbands are like, amen? Like, <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. I, one of the hardest parts, uh, one of the hardest things that we learn in marriage is communication. What it means to communicate with somebody who you're now going to be so close to in such close physical proximity, emotional and spiritual proximity. How do I communicate in such a way that it's helpful? Uh, how do I not say the wrong thing? How do I say the right thing? Communication becomes a difficult thing for us to learn. I saw a testimony uh, recently that captured this difficulty uh, for the marriage relationship pretty well. See if you can relate to this. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head it is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. No, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like there's this achy, I don't know what it is. 
and I'm not sleeping very well at all, and all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on! Ow. If you would just don't. <laughs> I think we all relate to that. That's why we're laughing so hard. Marriage is not always easy, but it's absolutely always worth it. And it's important for us to put a lot of energy into doing this well because a lot rides on marriages being healthy. It's important to work especially hard on our spiritual health because it leads to the health of our marriage relationship. When I preach weddings, um, which I've grown to just really love to do, to be invited into this moment where a, a young couple is going to enter into this covenant with God in a way standing on holy ground. What God is doing, bringing two to become one is a pretty special moment. And when I preach weddings, I try to reiterate uh, more than once that this ceremony is one thing, but the marriage that they're going to experience is a part of God's plan to show a watching world that they can believe that he is good, that he is true, and that he is loving. Meaning, as neighbors and friends and coworkers and people that you're around, watch you live your life together in this beautiful marriage relationship. They get a glimpse of understanding better how God relates to his people. By the way that the husband leads and loves his wife, by the way the wife loves and cares for her husband, we get a glimpse of what it looks like for God to love and care for his people. Your marriage is a part of God's plan to show a watching world that they can, in fact, believe that he is good and true and loving. And that testimony that we have to a watching world is a pretty big responsibility, so we need to make sure that we are doing this really, really well to show the world a very true picture of what godly marriage points out to them. And the best way to do that is to honor marriage the way that God intended for marriage to be. If you want God's blessing on your marriage, you honor the way he intended it to be. Maybe you've heard the old adage, the best thing that a, a man can do for his children is to love their mother well. I heard a preacher say uh, recently, an older preacher say, well, the best thing that a couple can do for their church family and for their community is to model Christian marriage. Model it for your church family. Model it for your community. Because the impact uh, is a ripple effect. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says, marriage should be honored by all. My question is why? Why should marriage be honored by all people, not just Christians, not just people in the church? Why should marriage be honored by all? It's because of the incredible power and potential that marriage has to influence uh, the health of a church, of a community, of a nation. See, God uses healthy marriages to create healthy families and healthy families to create healthy churches, healthy churches to create healthy communities, healthy communities to create healthy nations, and on and on it goes. And it can be traced back to the fact that we need healthy, God-honoring marriages. And so it's no wonder that the enemies, one of his primary attacks for us in today's world is to attack the very fabric of marriage. If he can get us to question why we should even honor what God has given to us in marriage. He knows that it'll begin to fade, and when it begins to fade, what happens is families suffer, and churches suffer, and communities suffer, and nations suffer. And all it takes is to look around a little bit, and you begin to see that's exactly what Satan's been doing to marriage all around us. Cohabitation, 
open marriages, no-fault divorce, same-sex marriage, gender redefinitions, all of this is actually leading us to experience quite a bit of pain in our world today, and it can be traced back at least in part to the need to have godly, God-honoring marriages. So in order to honor God with our marriages, we have to understand what God said about marriage. And that's what Paul begins to lay out for us in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, before we get there, I want you to keep a couple things in mind. The first thing I want you to keep in mind is that this passage is going to use language that's hard for our 21st century ears to hear. It's going to mention things like submission and leadership, authority, respect. And that's difficult for us to hear. So it's important for us, if we're followers of Jesus, to listen to that language through the lens of understanding how Jesus defined them. In John chapter 13, the night before he's betrayed, Jesus has his disciples gather around. And he asks them one of the most profound questions that I've ever come across. He asks them this question in John chapter 13. Do you understand what I've done for you? Now, I think that question is so profound that you could just sit and meditate on it all week. Just let that question sink in all week as you're thinking about what God has done. Do you understand what I've done for you? Now, the context is Jesus had just washed their grimy, nasty feet right? They're disgusting feet. And you have the teacher washing the student's feet, the master washing the apprentice's feet. He gets down and he washes their feet and he asks them this profound question. Do you know what I just did for you? And of course they didn't. It's one of the beauties of reading their biographies of Jesus. The gospels is that they are writing from the perspective of, we didn't get it then, but boy, do we get it now. Man, we can see what he was doing. See, in that moment, what Jesus was doing was redefining leadership in his kingdom. You see, now leadership was about serving and caring and sacrificing oneself so that the other would benefit. As one author put it, Jesus redefined all leadership as servant leadership in that moment. So we have to keep that in mind as we read through Ephesians chapter 5, is the way that Jesus approached authority and respect and leadership. The second thing to keep in mind, though, is what we talked about last week in the context of our passage in Ephesians 5. In verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes that there's this mutual submission that takes place among relationships in the church. That's all relationships. That's friendships. That's family relationships. That's working relationships. If you are a Christian and another person is a Christian, there is this beautiful dance that takes place where you are trying to serve one another and submit to one another so that you can see them flourish. Now, remember, we said the purpose of marriage, the marriage relationship, is the spiritual transformation of your spouse. That's what the Bible is laying out for us here. This is why this passage is actually proved to be hard to preach. I've listened to a lot of sermons and read a lot of sermons on Ephesians 5 that go very, very practical right away. Right away. Here's the four or five things that you need to be doing to make, and and that's fine. Those aren't bad, but there's something deeper going on here in Ephesians 5. And the Apostle Paul calls our attention to it and says, no, if you could just see that the purpose of your marriage is to prepare this other person that you're married to. Wives, prepare your husbands. Husbands, prepare your wives to spend eternity with Jesus. I want to bring your attention back to Tim Keller's quote because it really summarized the heart of what's taking place here. Here's, Here's what he says. For Christians, to fall in love is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you into and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking toward his throne And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence. And this is the purpose of a Christian marriage. It's partnering with God and your spouse to help them become who God is creating them to become. 
That's the goal of the Christian in marriage. And so now Paul's going to get into a little bit of the, okay, now if we're going to do that, that's the goal. What's my role on this shared journey I'm on with my spouse? What's the role that I play in this marriage relationship? Let's stand for the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 5. Here's what Paul writes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking of Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. You can be seated. As I said before, there's language here that kind of is difficult for us to hear with modern day ears. It's difficult for us to hear certain words because of the way those words have been used in more recent times, particularly the word submission. You see, submission in our world today is viewed as a weakness or some sort of an oppression, as though if you submit to something, you are losing something else. If you submit to something, you are being pressed down and oppressed from really experiencing true freedom. And yet we wouldn't say that about everything that we submit to. But when it comes to relationships, and so you run the risk as you teach through this of being misunderstood. The second reason why I think this is a really difficult passage for us to study is that I found this text to be challenging because foolish and immature and childish men who like to abuse this passage for their own sinful, selfish desires. I've seen far too many men who are lazy, uncaring, selfish bums who order their wives and their children around as though they're some sort of supreme ruler that the Bible says should be served at all costs. It's childish. You can tell that I'm a little bit maybe passionate about that. So to avoid going on a rant, let me quote Kent Hughes, who said this, God's holy word in the hands of a fool can do immense harm. So that's difficult, right? We've watched this passage be abused, and we've watched this passage be misunderstood. And yet, when you look at the Bible, the understanding of the roles that we have in the marriage relationship, that's not what was intended to be communicated. I mean, all the way back in the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates the man and the woman in his own image. Here's what he says in Genesis 1:27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And you notice a few things about this passage in Genesis 1 and 2 that begins to stick out to you. The first thing is this, that when God sees that Adam is alone, a man without a woman, a husband without a wife, he describes it as not good. This is the very first thing in the entire universe, in all of creation, that God describes as not good. It's not good that this man should be by himself. 
Immediately after uh, bringing Adam and Eve together, God gives them what is known as the creation mandate. He says, now together in this covenant married relationship, you're to go and be fruitful and multiply. You're to create. This creation mandate is what theologians call it. It's fascinating because after the fall, everything changes, except God says you are still to create. You are still to be fruitful and multiply. Here's my point in in pointing this part out. God gives them this shared goal to be fruitful and multiply, of which neither one of them could do without the other. I mean, we're not need to go into the details this morning to explain to you that in order to create a child, a man needs a woman and a woman needs a man. They're complementary. They each have a specific role. It's not the same role as the other. But in order to accomplish the goal that God has given them, they need one another. The other thing that you see is that Adam is given the role of leadership in the family. Eve is taken from a physical part of Adam's body. And then Adam is given the responsibility of naming her. Eve is then described as not inferior, not with less value. She's described in the Hebrew text, as we translate it, helper. And that's an okay translation, but again, it's a hard word to hear. But this word, when you trace it in the Hebrew language, you come to understand that it's more of a military term. If somebody was in a battle and they were clearly going to lose and they called in reinforcements, they're able to win the battle that by themselves they were not going to be able to win. In other words, Eve to Adam is the strength where he is weak. And though he's given the responsibility to lead the family, she's been given gifts by God to complement that which he is lacking in order to achieve the goal that God has given to them. I like the way Kathy Keller explains this. She says this, The entire narrative of Genesis 2 in which a piece of the man is removed to create the woman, strongly implies that each is incomplete without the other. Equal in value, but from the very beginning, given different roles, assigned different responsibilities within this complementary relationship to achieve what God has called them to. In Ephesians 5, Paul begins to lay out that role for the Christian marriage, and he begins with the woman, and he says, Wives, your call is to submit to your husband's. Submit. He says it two times in the first three verses here. He's emphasizing something that was given to all Christians and now specifically within the marriage relationship is a call placed on the woman to submit to the leadership of her husband. This submission is not blind submission. It's not uh, to submit without a voice. It's not to be oppressed or pressed down. It is to love your husband in such a way that he is encouraged and equipped to lead your family in the direction God has called them and to do so in such a way uh, that he's then encouraged to turn around and lead you in a loving way. We'll get to that here in just a minute, but there's this beautiful dance that takes place between husband and wife in the marriage relationship. There's nothing in the the text that suggests that a woman should submit when it's dangerous, abusive, or sinful. Please hear this. No woman is ever called to follow her husband into sin. Which means that if this idea of submission in marriage is to be understood biblically, it means that for a marriage that honors God, the wife needs to be fully aware of the direction that the family is headed. That her voice is heard, that her opinion is taken into account, that they, in a sense, have some co-leadership that takes place from time to time in the marriage relationship. She's to be aware, alert, and assertive. In fact, the command to submit in the Greek language, it's written in the, the middle voice. And what that means for us today is this, that the woman is willingly choosing, not being forced into, but willingly choosing to take on this role in the marriage relationship. 
Now, it doesn't mean that she just does what she's told. You got to hear it. It is a way of serving sacrificially. So when the world sees her love her husband, they get a glimpse of what it looks like for the church to follow the lead of Jesus. Because the church understands what Jesus did. And the church is being loved by Jesus in the way it needs to be loved in such a way that, man, we want to follow his leadership because it leads to us flourishing. That's what that looks like. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul describes this dance that takes place with Jesus being our model. In verses 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about the Son, Jesus, submitting to the Father, taking on this subordinate role, even the role of a servant. The Father then accepts the gift of that subordination, that servant mindset, but then exalts the Son to the very highest place. Each one of them wants to please the other one. And it's this beautiful dance of going back and forth where love and honor are given and love and honor is given, love and honor is given, love and honor is given, back and forth over and over again. And again, to quote Kathy Keller, I just think she nails it when she describes her own experience in Philippians chapter two and she writes these words. And then I saw it, Philippians two. If it was not an assault on the dignity and the divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead, to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play the Jesus role in my marriage? See, submission's not about oppression. It's about modeling sacrificial service. It provides a glimpse of what it looks like for the church to submit to the leadership of Jesus. And that leadership of Jesus is key in the ability to continue to submit. And so in verses 25 to 33, it's a call for men to sacrificially love and care for their wives. See, Jesus gave up everything, the text says, everything for the church. And a man must lead his family, particularly his marriage, in such a way that he's willing to give up everything for her to flourish. Sacrificing himself to the point of being willing to die. And I've talked to a whole lot of men that say, I'll take a bullet for my family, but you won't pray. Sure, take that bullet, man. You're a tough guy, but you won't lead your family spiritually. See, the sacrifice of Jesus was about the flourishing of the people he sacrificed for. He leads the church with patience, humility, and a deep desire to see the church thrive and be healthy. So let me ask you, can the same be said about the way that you're leading your family? That your deepest desire is not just to get what you want, but to see them flourish and walk closer to Jesus. Your role of leading is not so much about authority as much as it is about responsibility. Your family, your wife and children are on a journey toward the throne of God if they are Christians, and it is your responsibility to help get them there. And you cannot lead someone where you're not going. You can't lead somebody where you're not going and willing to go yourself. So men, this is hard. It's hard for me to preach. But if your leadership in your marriage is not characterized by your dependency on and your love for Jesus, then I would dare to say that you are sinning and need to repent. You need to own it, repent, and commit yourself to loving and leading like your master, Jesus. So if your life is not being shaped personally by the Bible, and if you're not praying for your wife, then you're not leading her where she needs to go. You're leading her where you want her to go. And those things don't always line up. And here's what I would quote one author saying, you cannot have a healthy marriage with a sick soul. You cannot have a healthy marriage with a sick soul. And there's so much riding on that. For us to get that right, to put our energy into that, to pause the career if you have to, to pause the dreams, to stop worrying so much about uh, trivial, meaningless things, to stop trying to control the narrative so much and instead pause and say, I need to lead in a way that is sacrificially loving and caring for my family. 
So much rides on your ability to get that right. And it is a responsibility. Tony Evans, the famous preacher from Dallas, put it this way. As goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the community. As goes the community, so goes the nation. So if you want to change the nation, change the community. If you want to change the community, change the church. And if you want to change the church, change the family. And if you want the family to change, change the man. See, when husbands lead their wives, it's a beautiful dance, as Philippians 2 describes it. A husband loving and sacrificially leads his wife in a way that all I want to see is you flourish and be closer to Jesus. And I'm going to lead in that direction. And the wife says, I want to serve and, 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 and come alongside you and support you and help you in such a way that you want to continue leading our family in that direction. And then he wants to continue to see her flourish. And then she wants to continue to see him flourish. And there's this dance that takes place between husband and wife. Equal in value given specific roles for the purpose of achieving a shared goal of making Jesus famous in their family, in their marriage, in their church, in their community, in their nation. And it all starts with this beautiful dance that we're called to do. When it's in sync, the world gets a glimpse of watching you lead your family well, watching you love your family well, and they get to watch this dance take place, and they get to see a glimpse and maybe say, man, maybe I can believe, because if that's the way God relates to his church, and if that's the way the church is supposed to relate to Jesus, then man, maybe I can believe that God is good, and he is true, and he is loving. Where I couldn't see it before, I watched my two Christian friends model it in their marriage, and now I can see, and now I can believe that maybe God is good. Please tell me more. All because you danced well. And it's not easy. I get that. But it doesn't have to be miserable either. A couple of years ago, my wife and I were headed to Pennsylvania to preach a wedding, uh, I was preaching the wedding. She was coming along, and we were, uh, it's a cool kid that grew up in youth group, and they were getting married out there, and we were excited. And so we extended the trip by a day because we wanted to stop in Columbus, Ohio, to visit some of our mentors, uh, David and Donna Lynn. Some of you know them. Um, their daughter, Deanna, is one of the missionaries that we support here. Uh, she's a missionary to Spain. She'll, she's actually stateside now, so you'll get to see her soon. Um, but we were, we were going to spend the day with them. And so a, a side note, if I could encourage you, regardless of how long you've been married, how much you think you know, how great. Find godly mentors for your marriage, for your entire marriage. And this is one of the many couples who have poured into my marriage. So we stopped and we, we hung out with them. We had dinner with them. It was really great conversation as it always is. And then David says, hey, you guys want to go for a bike ride? We're like, yeah, let's go for a bike ride. And then he explains the bike that Sarah and I are going to be riding. And here's a picture of it. It's a tandem bike. <laughs> We're going to ride a tandem bike. And I'm like, oh, all right. Well, okay. This will be really, really great. And it was on purpose. They told us, like, hey, we're going to have a conversation after the bike ride because you're going to learn so much about marriage riding this bike together. And if you've ever ridden one of these bikes, you know that, right? I learned a lot about what it means to lead my family well riding that bike on that one day. And I kid you not. See, when I rode that bike, we were having to ride the bike. It became very clear early on that if I didn't communicate in such a way that she wanted to keep going and she knew where she was going, it wasn't going to work well. We were going to crash. And so as we would ride, I would say, hey, all right, pedal, pedal, coast. All right, pedal, coast, coming up on a turn here. We're going between these two posts right here. We're going to hit some water here. Coast, pedal, pedal. We'd hit a hill. I'd say, pedal, 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 right? Like, <laughs> uh, and look, had I just assumed that she should know this stuff, right? She should know. She should watch me and, and not commute. It would not have worked out. We would have crashed. 
had to do in such a way that she was encouraged to keep going. She was encouraged to keep pedaling so that we could be going in the direction that we were supposed to be going. And to anyone else that would have seen us riding that bike, they probably thought, you look foolish and you sound foolish. And we probably looked foolish and sounded foolish. But here's what I've learned when it comes to marriage. A lot of the world will look at what Christians are doing in marriage and think it looks foolish and it sounds foolish until they realize we're the ones not falling. It was a valuable lesson. We learned about submission on that bike. At any point, my wife could have been sitting on the back of that bike and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I could have been like, pedal, pedal. And she's like, no, no. And it wouldn't have worked. Like we would have fallen off of that bike for certain. So it became really apparent that in order for us to get where we were going, it needed both of us to be working on heading toward that goal. And it meant that in order to succeed, it wasn't so much about the authority that I had sitting in the front seat of the bike as much as it was the unity that we had to have in order to get where we were going. And that's the responsibility of leading your family well. But the last thing we learned was this. It was just fun. And one of the things they encouraged us with is like, don't overthink everything all the time. Like, it can be enjoyable. You're allowed to have fun in this relationship. Sure, it won't always be easy, but man, is it not tempting to make everything serious and everything about this huge, dramatic thing. I'm the chief of all sinners when it comes to that, and this was a vivid reminder to just enjoy being together. I can't even tell you. Man, I got emotional in first service, too. It became a core memory on that bike. I I don't know why, but man, I haven't heard my wife giggle and laugh like that. It was just so fun. And that memory burned into my mind of just her enjoying riding this bike and having fun together. Reminded me that God wants our marriages to flourish. Look, marriage isn't easy. Any kind of fluffy sermon or lesson that would tell you that it is is lying to you. And we know that. But man, it doesn't have to be miserable. God gave us a shared vision. He's called us to complementary but different roles within that relationship with the goal of leading our families and getting our families to his throne so that a watching world might look at the way we love and care for one another, interact with each other, and they might say, I think I can believe now that God is good and true and loving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for marriage, the way that you designed for it to be. Thank you that our marriages can flourish when they're focused on your son, Jesus, when the goal of our marriage is to see our spouse mature and be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. But God, that is not easy. We live in a world that tells us that marriage is all about how we feel and what we want and what we deserve. It's called us away from anything that looks like sacrificial servant leadership. So we can't do this in this world that's pulling us in a thousand directions without you. We need your word hidden deep in our hearts. And as Paul told us in verse 18, we need to be filled with the Spirit so that we can rely on his strength when we're weak to keep our mind focused, our families focused, our marriages focused on making much of Jesus. So we ask you to be there with us in the everyday stuff of life, helping us continue to keep our eyes fixed on him and to lead our families to your throne. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to respond with worship. And uh, if you're struggling, if you're not following Jesus, and you don't know what it means to become a Christian and to follow him, I'm going to sit right up front. 
And while we're singing, you're more than welcome to come up and talk. But even after the service, because I know that can be uncomfortable, just come up and catch me. I'll stay up here after the service. If your marriage is suffering or you're just going through a difficulty or a hard time, you just want someone to pray with you, man, we would love to do that. And we'll do that during this time of worship, and you can respond that way or after the service as well. But let's stand together and respond to God's word by worshiping.